And our text for today is going to be out of Galatians 3. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Galatians 3, 1 through 14. Yes? Ah. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand by Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree or hanged. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Will. All right, well, we're going through the book of Galatians. You're going to hear the same thing a lot of times over and over as Paul is um, very much the theme of this message is grace through faith alone. Don't add anything to it. If it's anything added to the good news of Jesus, it's not good news anymore. It's just fake news, and it's destructive for your soul. And so today, Paul is bringing up this idea of blessing and curse. So what does it mean to be blessed? It's kind of a cliche Christian word that we hear a lot of in our culture. Uh, We sign off an email or a letter, God bless, blessings. Uh, We might humble brag with a hashtag blessed with our new boat next to it, or maybe our, you know, child's perfect report card that comes in. Um, Some of us like to tell people, and they do say this out loud, I'm sorry to say, I'm too blessed to be stressed. Uh, We see signs hanging in houses that say bless this mess as an excuse for having a messy house. And One thing I learned this week is that when we sneeze and we say, God bless you or bless you, it's most likely rooted in uh, what took place during the bubonic plague. When someone would sneeze, there was a good chance that they either had the plague or that they were spreading the plague. And so we would quickly say, God bless you. And if there's ever a time where we can you know, relate to that. It's probably during COVID, but I've seen a lot less God bless you and how dare you sneeze in public. So um, the last thing I'm going to say is just growing up a little bit in the South. I've heard a lot about this. You have too. Um, And it's this phrase, bless her heart or bless his heart, right? And that's, 
usually preceding a put-down, but it's trying to soften the blow of whatever's coming next. So bless her heart, she looks just like her father. Or bless her heart, or bless his heart, he's not the sharpest tool in the shed, right? Like these are the ways in which we experience the word bless in our culture. And I will say that as Christians, there's probably an immediate flag that goes up even just in hearing the word blessing. When I told my wife what I was preaching on, we try to kind of line up some of the songs with the message, and I told her that we're preaching on this idea of blessing, and she said, "Uh, can you please ensure that people know you're not talking about the health, wealth, prosperity gospel? I think a flag automatically can be thrown just in hearing that. So that's kind of one extreme in, in the Christian world when we get to hear this idea of blessing. And then maybe the other extreme is sort of this deism worldview where God's sort of created us, he's done his thing, and then he's kind of left us to our own devices to live our life. And I think a lot of Christians live this way because they're not buying into the reality that God does actually promise us a experiential blessing here on this earth. So maybe the pendulum swings a little far from the health, wealth, prosperity gospel that says finances and just good fortune and all these things automatically come to me by being a Christian, and then we get resistant to it and we go, you know, God created the world and the rest is sort of up to me, and there's nothing that I really can experience beyond what I know intellectually. So I think those are kind of the, the ideas, at least in just my thinking about it, maybe you've had other experiences with this word bless or other trigger points that come up just in hearing that. Uh, but, but today, I want to talk about what maybe Paul is getting at and what all of Scripture is getting at when they refer to blessing. What does it mean to be blessed? The Christian life is a blessed life. Are you experiencing it? The Christian life is meant to be a blessed life. Are you experiencing it? This is a a working definition I found for it, for the word bless. To live a life where you experience the deepest sense of satisfaction or contentment, no matter what the circumstances around you are. To live a life where you experience the deepest sense of satisfaction or contentment, no matter what the circumstances are around you. So, as we look at this passage in Galatians, we see that there's kind of a problem going on. And this is the thing that we've talked about week in, week out since we've been in Galatians. And so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, um, but I do want to address it because I think it's really key to understanding where Paul is going with this. Galatians is a letter written to churches in Galatia warning them about wolves that have come in to the church and have begun declaring a false gospel, a false message. And so Paul is adamant about clearing that up. And he actually begins this letter by, by telling them this. I mean, imagine if I opened up a sermon similar to this. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Oh, stupid restore church, how have you fallen for this trick, this lie? 
And we hear that, it's like, wow, that's aggressive language that Paul's using. I'm just trying to preach the Bible openly and honestly here. It's what he says. The translations actually, uh, in our language, would probably be more similar to idiot. You idiot, what are you doing? And he's not saying that in a sense of cursing them, condemning them, but picture a father or someone who loves these people and he is so moved and motivated to give them the truth that he wants to rattle their cages a little bit so that they can understand the truth of what they need to hear. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The gospel is not something to be mixed with something else. The gospel is a message, a declaration in itself that stands on its own, and it liberates you to freedom. It liberates you to a relationship with Jesus. It frees you from being under the curse of the fallen world of sin, darkness, and death, and it frees you just in believing this declaration to becoming a child of God. It's very simple, but it takes a lifetime to journey through and understand. Tim Keller has a really good kind of definition of what the gospel is and what Paul is getting at specifically in this text. He says, notice that the essence of this message is not how to live, but what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The gospel is an announcement of historical events before its instructions on how to live. It is a proclamation of what has been done for us. It is a direction of what we must do. So the gospel really is different. Christianity is different from all other religions and that it doesn't begin with a way in which you need to clean yourself up. It doesn't start with a to-do list. It simply starts with letting you know who the king of the earth and of all of the heavens is. And it's Jesus Christ and his plan and the story of redemption of how he's come to this earth and he has rescued you out of your sin. He has rescued you who sat beneath the curse. And the Jews have come into the church and they have started out maybe believing this one thing and they have begun to change the message. They have begun to put this pressure on the Gentiles, because we have Gentiles and Jews mixed in the church in Galatia. And he has begun to say, you, they have begun to say, you as a grown man now need to be circumcised if you really want to be part of this elite club. If you really want to go to that next level of Christianity, what it means is you eat clean food and you're circumcised. That flies in the face of what Paul has been proclaiming, of what Peter was proclaiming, but the problem is now even the leaders are starting to buy into this lie, and it's beginning to destroy the message that should be being spread all across the world. It's destroying it, and it's placing a curse and a a, a bewitching over the heads of the people that are listening. There's a self-righteous attitude that comes from it, and division takes place. That's kind of the background of what we're looking at here. He says in verse 1, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What's interesting about that is that it probably wasn't before their eyes. That the people that Paul is talking to probably didn't see Jesus crucified live and in person. 
But what he's getting at here is that there is preaching that has taken place that has been so powerful by the Spirit of God that it has become a vivid picture to those who are listening. They have been awakened by this picture that has been painted for them. And Jesus has almost been as real as being in the room as they heard that declaration of the gospel proclaimed. How about you in your life? Was there a time in which you heard the gospel or Jesus showed up on the scene in your world and all of a sudden it just shattered every category of life that you had? It awoken your heart to the truth of who he is and you were obsessed. His point is this has happened to many of you in the church. Jesus has broken down the wall and the barrier that's been in your heart. He has revealed himself to you through the church, and you're forgetting it. You're forgetting all of that. It was so clear, it was almost as if he was there with you, and you witnessed him on the cross in a very graphic way. And then he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, duh. The great message of Jesus, the thing that resonates in your heart as you become alive as a Christian, is that it's not you. It's Jesus on your behalf. Jesus saves you. Jesus lived the life you couldn't live. Jesus died the death you should have died. Jesus rose again from the dead. He is the first of all resurrected, and you're next. And it's through him and his righteousness alone that you are saved. That's the message of Christianity. That is what exploded in your heart and in your mind. And do you think it had anything to do with your works at the beginning? No, it didn't. Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh. That word flesh is actually translated um, effort, like your own effort, your own works. Sometimes in churches, I don't know if you've seen this before, maybe even in your own life, there's just times where that message of faith is not enough. It doesn't feel like enough. And so what I need to do is I need to start doing sensational things. I need to start exploring uh, doctrines that maybe other people don't even know about or believe in just to, just to kind of awaken myself again. Maybe I need to put my kid in public school so he's like a missionary. No, I need to homeschool my child, and that way everybody will know like what a great and glorious Christian that I am. We take deep dives into borderline conspiracy theories sometimes as Christians, and I'm just going to say it. The COVID-19 vaccination is not the mark of the beast. You're not going to hell if you get it, and you're not above anybody else if you do get it. Either way, we like to find hobby horses as Christians and we like to jump on those hobby horses because the gospel of Jesus Christ sometimes just isn't enough for us. We have to make it a little better. We have to pursue something that is maybe, uh, I, I grew up, and I've told you this before, in, in a very charismatic environment, and I'm thankful for my charismatic brothers and sisters. They do know how to worship at a level that I don't, and I'm thankful for them. But it gets weird, and there was always this idea that if you can speak in tongues or if you have this certain gift, then you've really accessed Jesus. 
And I'm telling you right now, it's a lie. We all stand, it's a gift, it's wonderful to have, but it, does, it should never elevate us above anybody else. The gospel of Jesus should never become this boring story that sort of loses its momentum and then we have to go wander around and find something else. I had a basketball coach in high school who played big time division one. He was an awesome shooter. He played the same position I did. And he began to work with me in the summers. And the first thing that he did when he began to work with me was he began to work on my layups, my shot right underneath the basket, left hand, right hand, and my form. And I would just stand there for 20 minutes before I did anything else. He'd just say, like a you, follow through, you know, every time. And I was like, I learned this in third grade, bro. Like, I'm so disappointed. I thought I was going to, you know, learn some Pete Maravich stuff or something. Like, give me something better. I want to go to that next level. And he said, you will do this every single day as long as you play basketball or you won't be playing basketball anymore because it's the fundamental, it's the foundation of basketball. You've got to walk through this every single day. And the same is true with the gospel of Jesus. It is, in essence, all of Christianity. And the other option that Paul gives is that if it's not a blessing that you're living under, then you're living under a curse. There's two ways to live, under a blessing or under a curse. And I know that might be controversial to say, but it's the truth. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. You are either to live under the law, which demands that you live perfectly without any flaws, heart motivation, actions, everything. Everything must be perfect in order to pass that test. And if you don't, you're under the curse of the law. Or you live under the reality of what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross, holding the law perfectly himself, and then actually dying under the curse and the wrath of God as if he didn't keep it. Those are the two ways in which we live. Those are the two options. There's no in-between. So let's see how this plays out if you try to just keep the law. He goes on to say in verse 10, he says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and then do them. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. Cursed, he's quoting an Old Testament passage, I think from Deuteronomy, but he says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 12, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. If you're going to try to maintain a good moral life apart from Jesus, then you better be a really, really good law keeper. And the only one that we've ever seen do it has been Jesus Christ himself. Otherwise, you're under a curse. Pastor Gavin um, has a sports fan law that he wants all people to live under, okay? Pastor Gavin, if he sees you wearing a hat, your favorite team repping it. I might have shared this before. If he sees you wearing a hat, he doesn't even care what age you are. He will grill you to make sure that you are an actual fan of that team, and then he will let you know, I don't know if you should be wearing that hat. If you cannot answer the trivia in which... I, I had one of the most awkward moments I've ever had 
we were at a church planting kind of venue with some other pastors that were there, and a guy was wearing a St. Louis hat, uh, a St. Louis Cardinals hat. I'm not a big baseball fan. It took me a second there. St. Louis Cardinals hat. And he just, he said, so you're a Cardinals fan. The guy's like, yeah, 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 you know. He's like, did you grow up there? He said, no, I'm just a fan. He's like, okay, cool. Like, who's playing shortstop right now? And the guy's like, man, I, I just, you know, honestly, and by the end of the conversation, the guy felt so deflated that he's like, I'd really just kind of like the colors and the hat seemed cool. And, you know, he just kind of walked off and Gavin's like, I didn't think he was a fan. <laughs> My son was wearing a Chiefs hat one day, six years old. And Pastor Gavin came up to him and said, hey, uh, who's their best wide receiver? Finn was able to answer. I was very proud of him. Tyreek Hill. Great, 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 great. Who's their defensive end? Finn's like, a defensive end? What's that? And he's like, Finn, I think you need to go study the roster a little bit more before you wear that hat. That's the way in which the law works. It grills you to death. Pastor Gavin is not under the law. He does put people under a fan curse. But other than that, he is not under the law, just to clarify. But it, the law will demand things of you that you can never accomplish on your own. And it will hold you to the very letter of it. It will dot every I, it will cross every T, and if you cannot do it, then you are guilty by the law. It's overwhelming, and it's meant to be there, and Paul will later tell us that the law is there to show us just how much we can't do it. It's a tutor, and it's a tutor that teaches us to look to the grace of God. That's the purpose of the law for us as we look at it now as Christians so if you're a theology police and you're judging everyone based off of their knowledge of the Bible and can they meet your standard at which all the things you know and do we align on this dot and this dot here and this point and this point, well, you better be ready. You better be ready to sit under that curse. You better be ready to sit under that law if that's what you're putting on other people and that's how you're living out. And I'll just go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. You're not a perfect theologian. You're not. Romans 11.34, who can know the mind of God? No one. None of us truly are perfect theologians. You might stand on a, a, a platform of how people should date, or maybe you stand on a platform on how to parent, or maybe you're just, just really tall on your eco-friendly platform, and, and you're judging everybody else around you, and you're calling them to that same standard, just be prepared that if you're going to go down that road, God's like, okay. And you cannot stand on it. It will crumble beneath you. It's sort of the gospel of Jesus removes all reason for pride. It sort of puts us in this place where we all sit under his glorious grace. I think we've seen a lot of it in terms of the political realm, right? Like, I've talked about this often this year, but how many times do we immediately feel a little above someone else? And the problem with that, because they vote left or they vote right, and the problem with that is the people that you're putting all your hope into, do I even need to say it in politics, are some of the most broken people around. So that contradiction of where your hope goes will quickly fall back on you because it's so imperfect. You're cursed. You're underneath the law in those moments. So how do we get this blessing? Paul does this genius thing where he gives us the origins of Judaism. Like he gives the Jews the origin of what they believe. 
as his case as to why they should not continue to behave the way they are. He brings up the highly esteemed Father Abraham, right? The OG of all Jews, right? Father Abraham, the first Jew. And he says, let's go to the very origins of what this gospel Christianity thing is all about. Father Abraham, he says in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that Father Abraham that he's bringing up was a pagan before he was ever a Jew. He was not of any God-chosen descent when God chose him. God counted to him not his circumcision, not the family in which he was born, not his race, but by faith he was counted as righteous. So sometimes we get Old Testament over here, New Testament over here. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And all the way back into the Old Testament, this whole thing was still built on faith. Its origins were built on faith. Not on works, not on race, not on your actions, not on what you eat or whether you're circumcised or not. It's all faith. You remember the story when Sarah was barren and old and God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son and they didn't believe him and Sarah started laughing and, you know, it just, they totally didn't believe him. But then somehow along the journey, Abraham believes and he says, okay, I'll, I'll trust you, God. It says, Genesis 15, 5 through 7. And behold, the word of the Lord came in. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heavens and, the num- and number the stars. And if you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Judaism was formed out of faith in Jesus, out of faith in the coming Messiah. Did you know that of that descent, of Abraham's children, would come Jesus? So God is saying, in faith, what you believe now about what I can do is actually believing in Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. And the way in which we get Jesus is not by what we do, but how we believe. What faith that we have in him. But if we are all under the law, the law demands perfection, then what is it specifically that we are supposed to do? How do we escape this? Verse 13, Paul goes right into it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's kind of a weird verse, isn't it? Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The only way to break the curse of the law is to either keep it perfectly or if you're guilty of it, have somebody else take your punishment. And guess what? Jesus did both. Jesus kept the law perfectly and he sat under the wrath of God in your place. And that is where our faith goes. Jesus was without sin, but he suffered as a lawbreaker. I think that part about 
curses everyone who hanged on a tree is interesting, but it actually comes from Deuteronomy 21:23. Cursed is everyone who hung on a tree, is what it says. When someone was executed, a lawbreaker to the level of execution was killed, they were stoned to death. And then after they were stoned, they were hung up on a tree. It was a picture of divine rejection. It was a picture to show everyone that this person is a lawbreaker, unclean, and has suffered execution for that sin. And God Himself rejects him. It wasn't that you hung on a tree that made you cursed. It was what you did and what it represented that showed that you were cursed. And Paul is taking that Old Testament reference of a tree and he is saying, guess what? Jesus hung on a tree too. Jesus suffered and died on a tree as well. And God, in his divinity, rejected him. A perfect man on our behalf. Jesus fulfilled the curse. Jesus fulfilled the punishment that was the curse so that we could receive the blessing. Our faith is in that. He says in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit has invaded your life. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. And it was because of what Jesus did that that blessing that was promised to Abraham to God's chosen people now extends to you. It is the promised spirit through faith. So this idea of blessing is not about looking necessarily for material things. It's not about waiting for good fortune or circumstances, although those things can be a gift. The ultimate blessing that we receive is Jesus Christ and the presence of his spirit in our lives so that whatever circumstance we walk through, we can go through it, and he's with us. Go ahead and, um, if you guys don't mind popping that uh, graphic up on the screen, this is something, I'll get out of the way here, this is something that I have shown before and it's been a big help for me but it's kind of like the timeline of a Christian's life. And if you see at conversion, when you come to know Jesus, there's immediately a growing awareness of God's holiness. Like I don't, it it just kind of increases the more you grow in the Lord. God is so holy and we are so different from him. And then you see below that there's also simultaneously a growing awareness of my flesh and my sinfulness. As Christians, we don't have to be afraid of talking about our sin. We don't have to carry shame around because we know that right in the middle there, it's swallowed up on the cross where Jesus died. And the more that we grow in sanctification and understanding, the bigger that cross gets in our life. We have a deeper understanding of God's holiness We have a deeper understanding of how sinful we are. It's not necessarily that we're getting more sinful, but as we understand the holiness of God, we understand, man, I am broken, like not just in the the bad things that I do, but the good things I do with bad motives or with selfish motives. Like it's overwhelming. 
but it's okay because the cross, the good news of Jesus and what he paid on our behalf just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And this is Paul's point in what he's saying is we never move past the cross because then what we try to do is we try to cover our sinfulness and our shame or our sinfulness in our flesh with, with shame and performance. Or we try to downplay and water down God's holiness. But the cross, looking at it, allows us to hold both of those things as true. The Christian life is a blessed life. Are you experiencing it right now? God's greatest blessing always rests in God himself. It's not necessarily what he can do for me, but knowing him, knowing what he has done for me, is the great blessing. And we obtain this blessing by living a life of faith that believes in the proclamation of the death, burial, and the resurrection of who Jesus is. I'm going to kind of tease this out just to one more thing here. Because there's a real practical thing, a real practical side to this whole deal. If you want to experience blessing in your relationships... You must first begin with understanding the blessing of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what I mean by that is all of your relationships will mirror your relationship with Jesus. All of your relationships are going to mirror your relationship with the Lord. If you have a grace-based understanding of who God is and how he loves you and how you don't have to earn anything in order to be loved and accepted by him and even in his presence, that's not a performance-related thing. You just understand I am messed up, but God has put his grace on my life and that motivates me to want to love and obey him even more. Guess what? When people mess up in your life, you happen to extend the same type of grace to them. You're a beneficiary of it, and so then you're also going to offer it as well. It's just a natural way in which we work. When people wrong you, you're quick to forgive because you understand that Jesus has been so absolutely unfair in forgiving you. How can I not extend grace and forgiveness to someone else? If you're trying out of your own effort to please God, if God's more of your employer and less of your father, and you're trying to please him by the performance that you do, try to be accepted by him, you are going to use other people in order to make yourself look better. And when you do things, because everything is contingent upon what you do, when you do good things, you're immediately going to feel self-righteous around people. And guess what? They feel it. They experience that. And you're not having a relationship of unconditional love with anyone. You're simply using them to get more brownie points. The relationship that you have with Jesus will mirror the type of relationship and love that you offer toward other people. And one is a curse and the other is a blessing. If you're under the curse of law and the standards are so high, you won't be, and you, don't, you know God is just telling you you have to keep every letter of the law, otherwise you're done. You're going to hold that same thing over people's heads and you're not going to be able to let things go. Proverbs 19.11, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. 
the little things. I could just let that go because God is constantly letting things go in my life. My wife is affectionately nicknamed a mode that I get into, which is lawyer mode. And that's usually I don't have a good understanding of God's grace in my life in that moment. And so when we get in an argument, I will win. And it has nothing to do with the fact of me being right or not. It has nothing to do with me loving and cherishing my wife. I will win because I have to. It's lawyer mode. I'm guilty of it. God wants to invite us in church to a blessed life with blessed relationships. And I'm just going to share this story as I close. I mentioned earlier that Donna Young passed away a couple days ago. And when I went into her home, I met with her husband, David. She's an older lady at our church that um, just really suddenly got cancer. And um, one of the, the more godly people I've ever met in my life, one of the more mature Christian couples I've ever met in my life, they, in their older age, they just decided to go to Sri Lanka after, uh, I think it was a hurricane that took place. And they hung out there for 10 years till the doctor told them they're getting older in their years and they need to move back to seek medical care. Uh, so they came back here, but they suffered and they bared the burden of people in Sri Lanka for 10 years, rebuilding that island. Came back here, started coming to our church, and her ministry never stopped even coming back here. She extended a gracious and loving heart toward everyone that she was around. She prayed over many of you on a regular basis. And when I walked into their home, which was so beautifully decorated, and I cried with David, I prayed with David, and he said he's grieving with unbelievable hope because he knows he will see her again, and he explained to me some of the last seconds on the bed that she had, and she just simply told him and told her sister that she is totally okay to die. She said, my life is full. My life is full. I have a clear conscience. I know Jesus loves me. I've done the work that he's asked me to do. I'm ready to go when the Lord wants to take me. How many of us can say that? How, how few faithful people do we see walking out this life of blessing while dying of cancer? That tells you right there, it's not circumstantial. But her hope was in Christ and Jesus presence was with her to the very end. And David told me, my phone won't stop blowing up from people around the world where she has blessed them. They've been crying. They've been sending me letters. They had so much food. They were actually giving their neighbors food, um, just being meals being brought to them. And he said, everywhere I look, I can just see the fingerprints of God's blessing on my wife. How many of us desire that, want that. Church, more than anything else, I want to be a church that doesn't just intellectually, I believe in God, the demons believe in God, but do you have a relationship with Jesus because it's your relationship with Jesus which will lead to a blessed life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the great blessing of the gospel, the good news of Jesus that tells us we don't have to earn that Jesus did it for us. Lord, I think for some of us, we, we probably are just in a state of kind of intellectually knowing about you. There is sort of a deism at work in our faith. Maybe some of us have even bought 
into the lies or come under condemnation that the more faith I have, the more prosperity I'll experience, whatever it might be, Lord, I just pray that you would invade our lives with the good news that is so familiar, but it would sound so new to us of Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, that our hope would be found in the resurrected Savior. And like Donna, when we get to the end of our lives, Lord, that we can have unbelievable hope and a clear conscience that says, I'm ready. I'm ready to be with with my Savior, to be fully in the presence with Him as I'm experiencing this pain. Lord, give us the gift of blessing that comes through salvation. As mature Christians, as early young Christians, wherever we might be, may we never look past the good news of what you offer us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.